why talk about esophageal cancer at a, at a conference like this? And uh, these are the reasons I thought I would suggest. First, because I think I have a very interesting story to tell you, and every talk should have a, a good story. Um, but then secondly, because uh, non-communicable diseases increasingly contribute to disease burden in the developing world. And in fact, this is a real... Uh, buzzword now and buzz label in global health circles is NCD, non-communicable diseases. Uh, across Africa, cancer, diabetes, heart disease are increasing public health burdens. Um, and in a country like Kenya, where esophageal cancer is the leading cause of cancer death in men, esophageal cancer is relevant. Uh, NCDs are often managed differently in the developing world than they are in the United States. We have Huge technology we use, we bring to focus on people with cancer that is missing in the developing world. So how does that play out and what happens to cancer patients? And then uh, finally, this is a case study of how research happens at a mission hospital. It's one case study of what could be many, uh, but I thought it was an interesting story to tell you. So I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about the overview of esophagus cancer, and then we're going to focus on esophagus cancer in the developing world. So this is a picture of the distal esophagus of the gastroesophageal junction. So this is the place where the squamous mucosa of the esophagus meets the columnar mucosa of the stomach. Here's what it looks like under a microscope. And uh, so there's really two forms of esophageal cancer, adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. Squamous cell carcinoma arises from the squamous lining of the esophagus. Adenocarcinoma arises from gastric-type mucosa, actually, that comes up into the esophagus, so-called Barrett's esophagus. And this is a picture of normal and of someone who's had chronic acid reflux and developed this change of this gastric-like mucosa in the distal esophagus. And in the United States, this is the main risk factor for cancer of the esophagus. Not in the rest of the world. Well, Europe it is as well. But in the South, this is not much of a risk factor. But where we live, this is the main risk factor, Barrett's esophagus, consequence of chronic acid reflux. And here's a picture of Barrett's esophagus with a cancer uh, growing in it in an American patient. And what are the risk factors for this? Well, as I've already mentioned, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease. Being white increases your risk of this form of esophageal cancer. Being a man, using cigarettes, being obese, these are the major risk factors for esophageal adenocarcinoma. And I'm not going to say much more about esophageal adenocarcinoma in this talk. This is the form of esophageal cancer that's prevalent worldwide. And if you look at the global burden of esophageal cancer, it's mainly this, which is squamous cell cancer of the esophagus, arising from the squamous mucosa of the esophagus anywhere along its length not just distally where the Barrett's esophagus might form. And these are two examples of, of, of adenocarcinoma of the esophagus. This can be quite a subtle disease in its early stages. So this is a video. I challenge you to, to see if you can see the cancer uh, here in this patient. That's just spasm of the uh, motility of the esophagus. Did anyone see the cancer? You did. Anybody else? Should I play it again? Are you all just sleepy? <laughs> so one guess would be the white plaques. That's not actually it. Take another look. Yeah, it's down here. That's right. Maybe it is some white too, but there's a pink sort of slightly nodular area right there. And that's a so-called T1 or mucosal cancer, squamous cell cancer of the esophagus. So where does this disease happen? 
Well, here's the uh, global statistics, at least as of 2002. Red is the high incidence areas for this disease, squamous cell cancer. Green and yellow are the low incidence areas. And you can see there's quite a striking global variation. In fact, there's tenfold difference between the high, fold, high prevalence areas and the low prevalence areas. And the high prevalence areas include uh, Asia, China, especially Lingshan Province, China, uh, all across uh, the, the, uh, the Himalayan region, Assam in India, uh, northern state of India, extremely high incidence. Caucasus Mountains in Iran, very high incidence of this disease. East Africa and South Africa, high incidence. There's an area in Brazil with a very high incidence of squamous cell cancer of the esophagus. So the bulk of, this, of the disease is in these locations. And what are the risk factors for this? Well, in the United States, we say it's cigarette smoking, alcohol, some rare diseases of the esophagus, and lye ingestion. Uh, but globally, these aren't really the issues. In fact, we don't completely know what the issues are. But in the developing world, the squamous cell cancer risk factors are quite different. There's some evidence that there are dietary deficiencies involved, especially selenium deficiency. Um, toxins seem to be a big part of the story. And I'm going to talk a little more about toxins uh, as this, in, a, in a minute or two. Hot beverages, interestingly. I'm going to tell you about that aspect of the story, too. I see the tea drinkers in the audience are waking up with some concern there about that one. Um, and uh, probably genetic factors as well. And uh, this story is slowly beginning to unravel, uh, thanks largely to the work of a team of, of scientists at the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, Dr. Sandy Dossey, Dr. Christian Abnett, and their colleagues have really started to uh, disentangle some of this story. So they did some work in Brazil where they drink a tea called mate. Is anyone here from Brazil or had mate? It's drunken in Uruguay, elsewhere. So um, I've never had it myself. But mate, it turns out, is high in something called polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And uh, now those of you who know mate could correct me, but my understanding is the leaves, tea leaves are smoked. Uh, as part of the process of making mate. And in smoke, you have PAHs. And so if you take mate and brew the tea, and then you measure the PAHs, it's loaded with it, the actual tea that you're going to drink. And um, you can look at the urinary PAH levels of Brazilians, and they correlate with that person's risk of having esophagus cancer. And uh, Sandy and Christian proved that. So mate... Uh, it was, this is one of the first uh, stories globally where it became clear there was a toxin contributing to uh, esophageal squamous cell cancer. And uh, they've since done some work showing that there are genetic polymorphisms in how the PAHs are processed in the mucosa. And if you have the wrong polymorphism of, of the, that metabolic gene and you're drinking a lot of mate, you've got a big problem because you're really priming yourself for esophageal cancer. One of the fascinating parts of this aspect of the story is um, last time I saw Dr. Dossey and asked him about this, I said, well, what's going to happen? People love drinking mate, apparently. You know, are they going to stop? And he said, no, but some, some of the companies that make the tea have begun to market PAH-free mate in Brazil. They've, you know, perceived that this is perhaps a way to get a competitive advantage 
in the marketplace. So that to me, that's just huge. I mean, you know, from understanding a disease process to maybe intervening and changing it. How often does that happen in one person's generation and one person's lifetime? Um, but so part of the story, probably PAHs. And it turns out, if you go around the world and say, now, well, where, what about PAH? Could that be the story elsewhere? Maybe T causes esophagus cancer. Well, it's not that easy. Dr. Dossie uh, from Kenya in the last year or two has uh, got every brand of tea he could get his hand on in Kenya and brewed the cups of tea and measured them. There's no PAH in any of the tea. So um, it's not that simple. However, in Assam, there's, a, there's a, uh, anyone here from Assam or go a lot to Assam? There's a condiment that's eaten in Assam called kalakar, which is smoked banana leaves. And uh, we wonder if kalakar eaters have high pH levels. We're trying to do in their urine because there's huge esophagus cancer there. We're trying to do that study now. So it may be that the story uh, plays together in different ways. Now, here's the tea uh, part of uh, the hot beverage start part of the story. So for decades, people have been saying it must be hot drinks that cause esophagus cancer. But, you know, maybe. It's usually things aren't that simple, right? But, but uh, doctors, Dossie and Abnett and others have done a study now in Iran, where they looked at the temperature at which people drank their tea and asked, does this correlate with the risk of esophagus cancer? And they actually went around and put thermometers in teacups of 40,000 people in the Caucasus Mountain regions of northern Iran to ask, well, what is the temperature people drink their tea at? Very hot, hot, warm, or lukewarm. And they validated uh, this by actually measuring temperature. And they found out if you drink your tea scalding hot at over 70 degrees centigrade, you have an eight-fold risk of getting esophagus cancer in that region compared to if you drink it at lower temperatures. And uh, the volume of tea you drink doesn't matter. It's the temperature of the tea. So now this is fascinating, and, and it raises the question, well, how would that fit in with things? And maybe there's, a, maybe there's a thermal injury to the epithelium that combines with toxins. Maybe it makes the epithelium more permeable to toxins. We don't know the whole story, but it's a fascinating story because the etiology for this is starting to be teased out. Now, um, the cardinal symptom of esophageal cancer is dysphagia, a sensation that things are getting stuck when you swallow and they won't go down to the stomach. And unfortunately, it's a late symptom. The esophagus is a distensible organ. And so it copes for a long time with a tumor growing there. That video I showed you of the very early cancer, that person had no symptoms. If you, by the time a cancer causes a symptom, it's near obstructing, and it's often the disease is advanced. And so this is a very difficult disease to treat, but because by the time it becomes symptomatic, and by the time the patient comes for care, which in the developing world is particularly an issue, it's typically an advanced and incurable tumor. And there are various ways of diagnosing the disease. We stage esophageal cancer by the TNM system. And T stands for tumor. How uh, advanced is the primary tumor? And this is a little cartoon of the esophagus wall from the mucosa through to the muscle layer. If the tumor is just in the mucosa and submucosa, it's T1. If it goes into the muscle, but not through the wall, it's T2. So T1, T2, it's contained in the wall. T3, it's through the wall into the surrounding mediastinal adventitia. T4, it's invading other organs. So um, um, it's really only 
T1 or T2 disease, disease contained to the wall of the esophagus with no involved nodes, where you have a decent chance of curing somebody. And most people, by the time they present, are not at that stage. They're at a more advanced stage. So um, the stage determines the prognosis. And so this shows, this is data now from, the, from Europe and North America, the best treatment you can have for esophagus cancer. If your disease is confined to the esophagus above the red line, your five-year survival is anywhere from over 95% if it's just a microscopic cancer down to as poor as 30% if you have a T2 lesion. If the disease is through the wall of the esophagus, your chance of living five years is very poor, uh, no matter how good the quality of care that you get. And unfortunately, most people with symptoms fall into this category. In the United States, we, treat, we, we uh, work this disease up, as I said, in a high-tech way. This is a PET scan showing uh, in a CT. There's a primary tumor in the esophagus here with a node, and the PET shows the primary tumor and the node and tells you this is a T3N1 tumor, a stage 3 tumor. This is very expensive technology that you don't have in the developing world. Then we use these fancy endoscopes with ultrasound on the tip, and we put them in the esophagus and get detailed ultrasound pictures to tell exactly this is the wall, the muscle layer of the esophagus here. Is it T1 like this one just in the mucosa? Or is it T3 like this one? Here's the muscle layer. Has it spread beyond, and is it touching the aorta even here? But this sort of technology for staging is not available in the developing world either. So I first became uh, interested in this issue uh, at a place called Tenwick Hospital in southwest Kenya. Tenwick is a uh, WGM mission hospital, and I'm a gastroenterologist, and I met uh, my friend Russ White, who works there, and, uh, years ago now, and Russ told me that they had this problem with esophagus cancer, where even though it's a remote little hospital in a little village in southwestern Kenya, they're seeing new patients every day with squamous cell cancer of the esophagus. In fact, currently they see four to five new patients a day with squamous cell cancer of the, of the esophagus at their little hospital. And that seemed rather remarkable to me. And this whole topic was new to me at that time. And this is sort of the typical patient who arrives at uh, Tenwick Hospital with esophageal cancer. You can tell who the patient is, right? She's the woman in the, in the wheelchair. And what do you notice about her? She's wasted. I mean, you know, you can see severe wasting in her face. And she's starving to death because she hasn't been able to eat for a long time because her esophagus is obstructed. In fact, most people who come into the hospital look wasted. They look like they've been in a famine or they've come out of a concentration camp or something. She is actually the youngest person in this picture. These are her parents. And uh, uh, her uncle... And that's one of the hospital workers. So this woman was in her early 30s uh, with her cancer. And uh, Dr. White is a thoracic surgeon. He trained in thoracic surgery so he could go to this hospital and operate on esophagus cancer. But unfortunately, most of his patients are too, have disease that's too advanced. They simply aren't surgical candidates because of malnutrition, metastatic disease, some other finding that would just make it prohibitively risky to operate. So what to do for this young woman? So... Um, my first involvement with Russ and with his hospital had to do with 
with trying to figure out a way to better palliate the tumors of patients like this. And the best treatment for this in someone who can't be operated is a thing called a stent. It's an expandable tube you put across the tumor to prop open the tumor and let people swallow again. And it does nothing to treat the cancer, but it really prolongs people's lives by letting them be nourished, preventing them from drowning in their own secretions. And uh, the problem with stents is that even when, we, when I first went to visit Russ, they costed about $1,500 a pop to, for a stent. And it just seemed crazy that you would ever think of putting a stent in someone in southwestern Kenya because the, the cost just seemed prohibitive. But uh, the Lord, by a miraculous series of events, um, I, when I went to visit Russ for the first time in the late 1990s, I, t- I had 20 stents I took with me that had been donated. I thought that was astounding that someone had, had, had uh, through uh, uh, encounters the Lord arranged, had given me that many stents. And I got there, and we figured out how to put them in without x-ray, which was supposedly required to put them in. And we, uh, uh, and, uh, we helped some people. And then the Lord continued to provide for Russ. It turns out the company that was making the stents had a supply chain issue that Russ could fix for them. And over the years, that company sent hundreds and hundreds of stents to Russ. And now he gets the stents from a company in China that's ripping off American patents. But uh, they don't have to worry about that in Kenya. And so now he, he, he gets stents at 10% of the cost that it costs in the United States. And so the globalization of healthcare and healthcare technology has been a great help for him. So um, at Tenwick Hospital, they put in a lot of these stents. And in fact, his team, the endoscopy team there, is probably the very best team in the world at putting stents in the esophagus. So that's what this young woman had. Uh, this is uh, uh, an x-ray of her we got beforehand. She, her tumor was quite high in the esophagus. And uh, we passed, we have no, no fluoroscopy, so we passed a guide wire through the tumor. We weren't entirely sure if it had gone to the stomach or maybe out through the tumor into her chest. And before we put a guide uh, stent over it, we wanted to know. So we sent her to x-ray with this uh, uh, wire taped to her cheek and got an x-ray and saw the wire was where we wanted it to be. And then we put a stent in her. And this is an x-ray the next day that shows this. You probably can't see it. The stent thing in her esophagus, some contrast going through to the stomach. And uh, um, this is, oh, sorry. This is her the next day actually having something to drink for the first time in a while. So uh, this is Dr. White in the middle with uh, um, David Rono and David Nyatich at uh, Tenwick Hospital. And uh, he actually decided to collect data about what he was doing. So he, he started keeping records. And they had a log. And they kept track prospectively of what happened to their patients. And a couple of years ago, Dr. White published the world's largest series of esophageal stent placement. Now, what an amazing story. So from, get, going to the, from the point of view of this is completely impossible technology for southwestern Kenya to 10 years later writing the world's largest series of how to do this and what the outcomes are. And actually, his experience is quite instructive because he found that the median survival in his series of people who are too sick to get surgery and were stented instead, the median survival is about the same as people who are too sick to get surgery and get intensive chemo and radiation in the West. So uh, uh, fascinating observations and quite provocative opera- uh, observations. Um, and along the way, he's published many other observations about this disease. But the question still remains, what's causing it in his area and what to do about it? I've already told you a little bit about PAHs. We think we might know in his region 
where the PAH is coming from. Anyone here ever, here ever been to southwestern Kenya? You ever had Morsik? Ah, I see some smiles back there. Yeah, yeah. So Morsik is this concoction that passes for yogurt, but it's got a lot of charcoal in it. We wonder if it's Morsik and other things. And we're, there's studies going on now at Tenwick to figure this out. The precursor lesion is known in the esophageal mucosa. It's a thing called squamous dysplasia of the esophagus. And uh, most cancers have some precursor lesion. In the colon, it's adenomatous polyps. In, uh, in uh, the cervix, it's cervical dysplasia. Well, in the esophagus, it's esophageal squamous dysplasia. And this also was described by Dr. Sandy Dossie, who I mentioned earlier. And there's a sequence from normal up through severe dysplasia. And the relative risk for cancer, this has been proven in a Chinese cohort, is 30-fold if you have severe dysplasia compared to if you're normal. So this is the precursor lesion. It's probably the histologic equivalent of a long-term exposure to toxins, perhaps to hot beverages, and so forth. And so... One thing we've become interested in at Tenwick Hospital is screening for dysplasia of the esophagus. If there's four or five new patients coming every day with an incurable cancer, is there some way we could prevent this cancer in that region? We know that curable lesions, such as high-grade dysplasia or very early cancers, are usually asymptomatic. Screening is required for diagnosis. In the U.S., we're talking about endoscopy for patients with, with chronic reflux symptoms to look for Barrett's esophagus, the precursor lesion to adenocarcinoma. But how about looking for squamous dysplasia in high-risk regions? So just like in the U.S., we advise screening colonoscopy for people. Maybe in, ten, in Kenya, we should be advising screening upper endoscopy for the prevalent cancer. So this is a picture of Dr. Dossie in a uh, village near Tenwick Hospital. Uh, this was last November when we began a study there that we're calling the STEP study to endoscope 300 asymptomatic adults living in the region. And so we go out to the villages. Actually, I don't go out to the village, but, but people I'm going to show you go out to the village. They meet with the village chief. They have a discussion about this. If the chief says yes, then they meet with all the men in the village on another day, have a discussion. What do you think? And if they all agree, then the study team comes back and actually enrolls people in this study. If the patient has any symptoms, uh, dysphagia, dyspepsia, stomach problems, they're out. We want people who have no symptoms. This is Dr. Mike Machiro, who's a, a resident at the hospital, who's being supported for two years to do this research and be a, a research fellow at the hospital, Kenyan doctor. And here he is enrolling an MZE, one of the uh, village elders in this study. And interestingly, we found that people in, in these villages are very interested in enrolling in the study. And there's two reasons. First, they trust Tenwick Hospital, which is a huge statement. Uh, and I think a hard-won statement. Secondly, almost everybody knows somebody who died because they couldn't swallow anymore. And so uh, people are interested. And this is Collins Bett, who's a study coordinator, taking care of some of the paperwork. And this is the team of people at Tenwick Hospital that are working on this study. So it takes some, some manpower. And this is an example of what we see. So this esophagus has been sprayed with Lugol's iodine, and the unstained or white areas are the areas that are dysplastic. This is an area of high-grade dysplasia there, previously proven by biopsy. So we've marked it with these little cautery marks, and now we're going to remove that area of dysplasia. And the trick comes, well, how to remove that flat piece of mucosa? So we're going to inject some saline there to make it swell up, 
And then we're going to suck that mucosa into this cap on the end of the endoscope and turn that flat air lesion into a polyp that we can remove. So this is an, an GI endoscopic outpatient procedure where we're removing this area. We've identified this area of dysplasia and we're removing it. And so uh, this one we're removing in pieces because only so much will fit into this cap, this endoscope cap at one time. And this technique, which is called endoscopic mucosal resection, is quite safe and quite effective. And there we've removed this uh, patch of high-grade dysplasia from this Kenyan man's esophagus in an outpatient procedure. This is another example. This is actually a T1 cancer. It's sort of nodular and heaped up in the esophagus. And when we spray with Lugol's iodine, we see there's quite a larger area of dysplasia, unstained pale mucosa here, uh, uh, with the cancer in the middle. And after endoscopic mucosal resection, the area looks like this. This patient stays an outpatient. They don't have any symptoms, and they can be cured of their, even of an early cancer. This is the same patient six months later. There's a scar where the resection was done, and with Lugol spraining, staining here, it now looks pretty good, although there's other areas of dysplasia in this person's esophagus. Yes? Endoscopic mucosal resection is a pretty safe procedure, but there is a small risk of perforation. It's in the 1% range. When it does happen, it's a serious problem because a hole in the esophagus is major trouble. Uh, and so uh, Dr. White, uh, when he first started putting stents in the esophagus for cancer, you have to dilate the tumor to get the stent in. And there's an instance about a 2 or 3% risk of perforation doing that. And... Um, he learned and he reported in the medical literature now about 10 years ago that just putting a stent immediately across the perforation was a very effective therapy, that you didn't have to try emergency esophagectomy in those patients. The problem in this setting is you don't have this bulky tumor with fibrosis and inflammation around it. And if you got a perforation from an EMR, you probably will need to, to do surgery. One of the problems with putting a stent is that the stent tends to slip down to the stomach. There's no tumor holding it there either. So we've had some patients where we've tried stents, even at my own institution here in the U.S., for perforations like this with some success. Um, but we always have the thought of some surgical backup if we need it. And so that is an issue in a place like Tenwick to say, well, are you going to do this, and what's going to happen to the 1 in 100 patient who has a serious complication? Uh, fortunately, there's a great thoracic surgeon right there and so who's inv heavily involved in this work. But it's an excellent question. Other questions before I go on? Yeah. So it's a great question. First, these were here before in that patient. I didn't really show them to you, but we were concentrating on the actual cancer. Biopsies of these areas had just shown low-grade dysplasia, and we usually actually just follow that. Um, and then if it becomes high-grade dysplasia, then we would remove uh, the, the uh, abnormal mucosa with the, with the method I've shown you. There are, though, patients, and we see this at Tenwick, where it's not just a patch, where there's a quilt work up and down the whole esophagus of dysplasia, and you can't think of removing at all. And then there's actually a different technique called radiofrequency ablation. That's the most appropriate. And I didn't put pictures of that in, but that's essentially a balloon that blows up. It has uh, electrodes over its entire surface, contacts the entire circumferential surface, 
and delivers a, a computer delivers current for a pre-specified period of time and burns off the mucosa circumferentially. And so RFA is actually a better choice for some people who have circumferential high-grade dysplasia. Uh, and we're still trying to work out some of these things. There's times when we don't succeed at ablating the whole uh, dysplastic mucosa through a, a scope. I would say we're still, you know, this story is still evolving too. Yes, sir. So uh, we initially tried doing a study just passing a device called a, a Brazilian balloon in the villages. Brazilian balloon is trying to get essentially like a pap smear of the esophagus. So the patient swallows a, what looks like a nasogastric tube, but it has a rib balloon on the end, and you blow up the balloon in the stomach, and then you pull it out. And it exfoliates cells along the esophagus, and you smear on a slide and get cytology of the esophagus, much like you, a pap smear would give you cytology from the cervix. And um, the, we found a fairly low incidence of dysplasia that way, which really surprised us. And we suspect that there was some problem with that. So the study we're doing now, we're actually doing endoscopy. And I've telescoped things together a bit. We're doing endoscopy in this Lugol's chromo endoscopy to try and find the dysplasia. If we see an unstained region, we just take a biopsy of it. And see, and then those who have high-grade dysplasia, we would offer some sort of treatment to, like what I've shown you. Uh, all the actual endoscopy is happening at the hospital currently. But our, the goal of the study we're in the midst of now is to say, what is the actual prevalence of squamous dysplasia in the community? And is there a certain age group and, re and sex that has sufficiently high incidence to merit screening exams? And if that turns out to be the case, I think we probably will want to move towards mobile screening to go work to where people are and, and provide the screening in a way that's easy for them. But we certainly wouldn't do these sorts of treatments in the field. It would be a diagnostic intervention. Yes, ma'am. So that's a great question. Um, one of the unique things about the the Kenyan situation with squamous cell cancer is the number of young patients. About a quarter of the patients are younger than 30 years of age, which is really very unusual. Uh, the youngest patients uh, Russ White has operated on were 14-year-old twins, both of whom had esophageal squamous cell cancer. So very un un unusual, and uh, even for these hot spots around the world. Um, so that does raise the question about fam family. And a survey there has shown that in, in young patients, there's, there is, I think, 70% had a family history of esophageal cancer. So there probably is a familial component that we don't really quite understand yet. And Sandy and his colleagues are, are hoping to do a study of genetic polymorphisms as part of a case control study we have going on there as well. Now, you asked me about HPV before we started which is a great question because we know human papillomavirus is uh, an important factor in cervical cancer, and this is another squamous mucosa. And unfortunately, the best evidence is that HPV does not cause this disease. Uh, it would be great if, we'd, if that were the case. We'd have a vaccine for it. Um, but st uh, specimens from Tenwick, from China, from elsewhere are just negative for integrated HPV DNA, unfortunately. So any other questions? So I want to conclude by making some summary statements about research at a mission hospital. I, I, want, I, I think one of the great things about the story I've told you is it showed how um, people at a mission hospital 
can actually make progress with a disease by doing research in it and maybe can even teach the rest of the world or help teach the rest of the world something about a disease. Well, how does that happen at a mission hospital? And here's a few summary statements I would make. First, you have to study a common local problem. You you know, you're not going to study zebras. Of course, what's common at the mission hospital might be a zebra in North America. Uh, And it's got to be a local problem for which you need a better solution so that everyone could agree in your team, this is something we ought to put some resources into because we just don't, we need to make progress with this situation. Then at Tenwick, partnerships have been quite important. And it's been huge for Dr. White to have a partnership with folks at the National Cancer Institute who bring a whole different set of skills and background and abilities to bear. Um, Along the way, he's formed some partnerships with people in medical education in Kenya and research in Kenya also. Uh, We're just now forming, we hope, a collaboration with a group of epidemiologists in in the capital, in Nairobi, trying to get at what is the the national uh, incidence of this disease anyway in Kenya, which no one really knows. So partnerships become key, and the Lord can use those partnerships for his purposes. It's not like they're somehow extraneous to mission. Um, The aim of the study has to be to improve local health, because the mission hospital is not there primarily to do research. In fact, it's not there primarily to do medicine, is it? It's there to reach people with the good news about Jesus. So the research, to the extent that it happens, has to contribute to the mission hospital's goal of of showing God's grace to people. And, of course, making progress with a serious local health problem is, is a huge demonstration of God's grace. And in that way, hopefully, research uh, will enhance a hospital's ministry. In fact, it's got to if it goes on. It it certainly can't detract from it. So I'm going to stop there. Other questions or comments about this topic? Yeah. So great question. The question was, what about the cost? This question from a radiation oncologist. What about the cost of things like radiation, chemotherapy, and what are the barriers? There are big barriers. In Kenya, there's one place you can get radiation. It's in Nairobi. And the waiting list is such that unless you know somebody or are very wealthy, you can't get radiation. So once in a while, Dr. White does send a patient to Nairobi for chemo and radiation. It's not that we're not believers in it. Absolutely, we're believers. It's a good thing. It actually kills the cancer cells, which a stent doesn't do. But, but um, um, the problem is it's just not possible for the great majority of the patients he sees. So it would be fantastic to have a radiation facility. And it would be fantastic also to be able to give chemotherapy. We've talked there about oral 5-FU, um, and I forget the name for that drug, but uh, there's, there's an oral preparation that's well-tolerated. We've talked about doing studies of that. We're not so sure that in isolation it's actually going to do much. Um, one, um, chemotherapy, uh, in your field, the problem is the capital costs of, of radiation therapy. For chemotherapy, it's fairly... It's not that big a deal to get some chemotherapy drugs to a hospital. The big deal is the supportive care of the chemotherapy patient. Because if you make a patient neutropenic and septic, you have to be able to take care of them. And that means you need a functioning microbiology lab. 
You need a functioning clinical lab, uh, chemistry and hematology lab that can function at a high level. You need some fancy antibacterial agents. You need an ICU that uh, can provide respiratory support and so forth. Now, that's a huge investment of time and energy for a mission hospital to create that infrastructure to give serious chemotherapy. And towards what goal? You know, it's interesting that our colleagues in the developing world who have to think about cost ask some of the hard-nosed questions we're often not that willing to ask. So if they say, if we're going to make that big commitment and we're still not going to cure hardly anyone, what are we doing? Why don't we just put some stents in? And, uh, you know, you have to look at that. On the other hand, there are settings where chemotherapy and radiation are curative. And mission hospitals, at least the ones I've visited, are very interested in those situations. Uh, the number of mission hospitals around Africa that treat Wilms tumor with chemotherapy and surgery for precisely this reason. Number that treat Burkitt's lymphoma, of course. And so two examples of common tumors in sub-Saharan Africa that are treated now at missions hospitals. But my understanding is you can treat Wilms tumor without making the patient too neutropenic. And Burkitt's I'm not entirely sure about, actually. Somebody here would have to teach me about that. But but uh, So there's great interest in providing this treatment, but the, these are the issues. But if Russ White can get enough stents to write the world's largest series, there's probably a way to get chemo radiation to a hospital if it makes sense. Back to some of these issues, you know, is, is it a common problem? Will it really change outcomes? And is the bang worth the buck? And then how can it be used for ministry? And it's, it's, I think it's quite likely that chemoradiation could be used hugely by the Lord for ministry in some setting uh, where there was a need and, and the diseases that could be met with that therapy. So I don't mean to discourage you at all. In fact, you know, God is a huge God. And if he wants the latest linear accelerator radiation setup at a hospital in Africa, it will be there. You know, I have no doubt about that. So I would say set your, set your sights high and start praying about it and see what happens. Yeah, I don't know if I'm willing to say that about linear accelerators. You're going to have to decide. You're going to have to decide. Other questions or comments? Uh, Dr. Adolph, do you want to make a comment about non-communicable diseases? Because uh, you yourself have uh, extensive experience with this. And about cancer in Africa. Did you find that research was somehow at odds with your work as a missionary or it enhanced it, or what was your experience with that?
conditions that require surgical uh, intervention, Absolutely, and I think your insight that a young person with paralysis due to TB of the spine could walk again, even if, it, even if they've been paralyzed for weeks or perhaps even months, has been a very important observation to practitioners and surgeons all over Africa. It's a beautiful example of, of research uh, having an impact, contributing to God's common grace. I mean, uh, changing things for young people. So, Other comments, questions? All right, well, thank you for coming. Appreciate your interest.